Welcome to DNA Clarity and Support. I'm your host, Brian. Listen as I chat with authors and leaders in the DNA world about the family and personal impacts of DNA testing. You'll hear news stories, unique perspectives, find out about books, websites, organizations, other podcasts for those involved in the world of DNA. Please be sensitive to younger listeners as the conversations can get intense at times. This is a production of Watershed DNA. Learn more at watershedDNA.com. Hi, Janice. It's great to have you on the DNA Clarity and Support podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Good. Good. It's great to be here with you. Thank you. So Janice Berliner is a genetic counselor with a long history of clinical practice before making a decision to move into the world of academia. And Janice is the editor of a genetics textbook and the author of a novel, which is what we're discussing today. It's called Brooks Promise. Thanks so much for coming on to talk about it. And I have read Brooks Promise and being a genetic counselor and knowing how hard it can be to simplify kind of complex genetics concepts into a way that makes sense for general audiences. You did a really great job with that. So I want to commend you on that. (laughs) And you've been a genetic counselor for a long time and have probably seen a lot of changes to the world of DNA. Mm-hmm. So how have you woven your genetic counseling experience into a novel that, you know, anybody can pick up and read and understand? <laughs> well, I decided to write fiction because I wanted to make genetics concepts and disorders accessible to the average reader. And a story is a powerful vehicle for teaching what families go through when living with genetic diseases. So having worked, like you said, as a clinical genetic counselor for so long, I had worked with so many families and understand the fear and confusion and potential devastation of a genetic diagnosis. So, you know, as, as you know from doing it too, our job as genetic counselors is to translate the complicated medical and genetic information into small bites that families can understand and digest. So helping them come to terms with the new normal in their lives is challenging, but critically important. And that's exactly what I tried to do in Brooks Promise, developing Empathy and a compassionate understanding of others is such a crucial part of humanity. And I hope that what you'll find in my writing is a kind of twisty and turny story that involves an awful lot of family drama and secrets on the way to some kind of redemption and reconciliation. That's a good description. Yeah, as I was reading it, there were some twists and turns. I was like, I did not see that coming. (laughs) Now looking back... I should have seen the foreshadowing of what was coming ahead. (laughs) So were there parts of the story that were informed by a certain case you worked on or a certain family you worked on at some point during your career? A lot of people have asked me that. And the simple answer is no. I really just made the whole thing up, which led my daughter to say, I'm sick in the head. Um, (laughs) Perhaps that's true. (laughs) But it was fun creating something out of nothing. Yeah, well, I'm sure a similar situation has happened before, maybe just not in every genetic counselor's own personal experience. I've had some like similar types of discoveries that the family in your novel made. 
I have had interactions and spoken with or written with people who've had similar types of discoveries. So I can it's not out of the realm of possibility. It's like right. fiction that's been inspired by reality. Mm-hmm. And I think most fiction is probably that way. Probably. So what were some of the inspirations for this work and kind of choosing to use both your clinical genetics knowledge and put that in in a novel form. Yeah. So one of my favorite authors is Jody Picoult, who wrote My Sister's Keeper among 20 million other things, one I love more than the next. And so many great books by so many. I know. And in My Sister's Keeper, she tackled the issue of a couple having a baby for the specific purpose of being, I forget, a stem cell donor or a bone marrow donor for her sister who had a long-term cancer diagnosis. And the ethical dilemmas in that really struck me. I've used that book actually for book groups with my students. And my other favorite author is Lisa Genova, who wrote Still Alice and Inside the O'Briens and a number of other books where she takes her knowledge from her PhD in neuroscience and uses that to make disorders like Alzheimer's and Huntington's disease accessible to everyone in her books. So it occurred to me a few years ago that I could combine the writing styles of the two and do the same for genetic disorders, making them easy to understand and very real. So in Brooks Promise, we're talking about a serious glycogen storage disorder in a young child, whereas in the novel that I'm wrapping up now, uh, we're talking about a hereditary cancer syndrome. Oops, you have a second book on the way. I do. It's exciting. Thank you. It's called In Good Conscience. I'm working on revisions now. I'm hoping to have it out maybe by the fall. Wonderful. (laughs) In Brooke's Promise, some of the underlying themes that your characters struggle with are feeling at fault for something that they're not really at fault for, feeling guilt and shame. And these are pretty common experiences amongst families, especially families of children with rare disease. And, you know, that feeling of that they should have known or should have been able to prevent it or something like that. And so people struggle with stigma around different issues like guilt and shame in our culture. As a genetic counselor, what stigmas do you see us struggling with in like Western society or Western culture? Yeah, I imagine stigmas largely come from people who are insecure in who they are, what they have or how they behave, whether that's intrinsic or put upon them by other people, I guess is situation dependent. Those who are considered different sometimes are looked at as odd or scary or less than. And the biggest stigma, I think you can disagree with me in genetic counseling perhaps is the issue of pregnancy termination when there's a hereditary or congenital condition identified in an unborn baby. And I think you know, many people naturally feel that the decision surrounding a pregnancy is the sole right of the parents, but then others feel that no pregnancy should ever be terminated under any circumstances. And the issues are really far more widespread and perhaps subtle than that. You know, when pregnancies with abnormalities are terminated by those with the means and the access, then the majority of babies who are born with birth defects or genetic conditions are born to those with less, not always, but sometimes. 
making the disability community smaller and the acceptance of differences harder to accomplish. Yeah, that, I found that to be a hard, hard part of clinical practice when I worked in maternal fetal medicine. Mm-hmm. I spent six years at a maternal fetal medicine center. And what I learned during those years, very difficult years, because you're with parents and families at the worst time of their lives. Mm-hmm. Yes. And what you hear over and over is people say, like, I never could have imagined what this experience would be like. I never thought I would ever consider terminating a pregnancy. And now I'm in this situation and it's like, I have two choices and both of them are bad. It's not like they're have an opportunity to choose between a good and a bad situation. Right. And for a lot of people, I think when they think about it in the abstract and think I would never terminate a pregnancy, they may not be considering what their lives will be like at that time. So, you know, if by the time this decision comes along, you have two other children at home, maybe, then now your calculus is different. It's not just, can I handle this or can the world handle this? Is what impact does this have on my other two children? And sometimes the impact is very good and sometimes it's very bad. And most of the time, it's probably a little bit of both. And so, you know, do your other children gain by the wisdom that they learn or the compassion that they develop because of this new sibling who has special needs? Or does it change their lives in ways that are negative? And, you know, you don't know that ahead of time. Right. So you and can't it's plan different. that. Every right. situation is so unique and every family is so right. different. And so many of the times the diagnoses that we can make prenatally don't tell us the severity of a disorder. And so you could say, well, if everything worked out the best way possible, given the circumstances, I would do this, but I don't know that. So maybe I need to do that. I I think the assumption sometimes is that people are terminating pregnancies without a lot of thought or consideration, when in fact, most of these are very much wanted pregnancies. And the couple who's terminating has done so not with no thought, but with with grief and trauma and memories they'll live with forever. Yeah. And some of the earlier guests that I've spoken with, we talk about trauma and how that experience changes someone's life forever. Yeah. And it's when it's unrecognized as a loss by society and public grieving is not allowed or um, there's not a lot of compassion extended towards people that are in really difficult situations or just struggling with their own lives. It's true. And I don't know if this is related really, but in my mind it is anyway. When you talk to parents of, or relatives in, in general, of people who have killed others. Let's say, I I don't remember a story about one of the shooters at Columbine High School years ago. And, you know, the parents were saying, we lost our son too. And people blame us and they argue, there's no way we didn't know. And whether you believe them is is maybe a separate story. They, They claim they absolutely didn't know. And I have no reason not to believe them. But the bottom line is, they also lost their son. And they, in a sense, are not allowed to grieve because no one wants to listen to that, right? And their feeling is, in addition to the grief, we also have the guilt and the shame and the ostracization. I don't know how to say that word. Um, (laughs) That's a really hard situation to be in. 
It is for sure. Yeah. What is something you hope the readers of Brooks Promise take away from the story when they get to the end? Yeah. Well, you know, as you know from reading it, it covers a lot of ground, right? There's rape, there's betrayal, there's genetic disease, there's family drama and conflict. And it may sound like a really sad and depressing story when you put it like that, but I feel that ultimately it's redemptive. The point is that love and family mean everything and that with proper communication and an awful lot of self-reflection and forgiveness, those who love each other can overcome nearly anything. That's an excellent takeaway. (laughs) So there's a part of the story where two people in a relationship discover something unexpected about the way that they're connected. And we know that this happens occasionally. What do you think is important for readers and I guess society in general to understand about stigma when it comes to relationships? Well, in my mind, what's important to understand is really the only reason that it is ill-advised to have a relationship with someone or marry someone that you're related to is if you plan to have children together. And even then, the risk is not as high as most people think. So, you know, society has stigmatized it in the U.S. and in a lot of other countries, but it's actually quite common in other groups. So, for example, in the Bedouin community in the Negev Desert in Israel, there's thousands of mostly Arab Bedouins who, by their culture, marry close relatives. It's intentional. Sometimes these can be as close as double first cousins. So in other words, the the mothers are sisters, the fathers are brothers, and they're they're very much interrelated. It's preferred, I'm thinking, due to factors such as keeping the wealth in the family, having the trust that results in knowing people their whole lives. And it's also a matter of proximity. You know, there are only a limited number in each group. And if you're somewhat isolated, that's all there is. You know, that doesn't really translate to the U.S. outside of the Amish population. So we're not really accustomed to it. But beyond the societal objections, there's really nothing wrong with having a baby with someone you're related to, other than the fact that, again, the risks are a bit higher. So we know that we all have a few genetic variants within our genes that when they're inherited from both parents, they cause disorders that people are probably familiar with, things like Tay-Sachs disease, sickle cell, cystic fibrosis, and a whole lot of others. Most of us never know we have those mutations because unless we have children with someone else who has a mutation in the same gene, our children are not affected. It can go on like this for generations and nobody knows about it. But of course, when you're related to each other, then there's a greater chance that you have the same mutation in the same gene having inherited it from a common ancestor. So that's the only reason that the risks are increased and the background population risk for having a child with a birth defect or genetic condition is somewhere on the order of three to 4%. And it goes up to maybe eight or 10%, even if you're fairly closely related. So that doesn't mean that it's a great idea necessarily to do it, but it also doesn't mean that it's a terrible idea. So, you know, we have a lot of laws on the books in various states about how closely related you can be to be married. But of course, we all know that being married is not a prerequisite for having a child. And and also the, the laws may be based on information that's not quite accurate. 
like an outdated understanding. Exactly. And of course, we have carrier tests that can be done on the couple before they have a child together. We can have preconceptional and prenatal testing that can test, you know, along the way, and which goes back to our previous conversation about pregnancy termination, potentially, that's available at least if something is detected. I'm glad you brought up this topic because it's a really hard one to talk about, but it's important for accurate information to be out there. It is. And one of the biggest takeaways in my mind is that that's one of the things that genetic counselors do is to assist couples with any of the above things we've been talking about to explain the risks, to explain available testing, to help them decide what's going to work for them. Yeah. And base things on science and scientific knowledge and not on societal stigma. Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to mention one resource at this point because working with the adoptee community, I have had a number of clients that have discovered that their birth parents were close relatives. And that can be a really difficult discovery for people to make and oftentimes is totally out of the blue, not something that they expected when they went started to search for biological family. And there are a couple of, I would call them underground support groups, but it's not that they're just very tight knit support groups, one in fa- one on Facebook, one not on Facebook for people that discover that their biological parents or close relatives to one another. And there's a particular pattern we see in the DNA called high ROH and ROH is a, an acronym. And the more that we talk about the available resources and help people find their way to these support groups and accurate information, I feel like we're we're helping to cut back, cut away the stigma and let people know it's okay. It's not, you had no say in your own conception and it doesn't determine your value as a person. I will put information in the show notes and in the blog post as well to all of your social media handles and how people can get a copy of Brooks Promise. And I'll also put a link to high ROH resources for, for listeners. And not, not every listener, it's going to be applicable to them, but knowing if they know it exists, we can hopefully help pass the message along so that those who are searching for information have a way to find it. So someone who is wanting to read your novel, let us know how they can find a copy. Oh, sure. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. It's on Goodreads. And if you'd like to order the book through my website, you can see a whole lot of information about me and my history. And I have a a number of blog posts there as well. That is simply JaniceBerliner.com. Excellent. You can email me at info at janisberliner.com. That is wonderful. Yeah. I look forward to your second novel. Thank you. And I think it will be one, it sounds like the topic of hereditary cancer syndrome. There are a lot of families that if they're not the one affected, there's someone in their family that is. So sounds like that will be very relevant for a lot of people to read. I hope so. You know, when I started writing it, my idea was to to think about issues of confidentiality versus duty to warn in a family where there may be a hereditary cancer syndrome. And when I was talking to my sister, who's my my first and best editor, she said, oh, see, I thought it was a story of a poor actor dude who got cancer. 
And I said, well, yeah, it's kind of that too. Um, so yes, it is a, a talented and famous actor who develops a, a serious cancer and in the course of his treatment feels like he's being betrayed by the people he trusts most. And it doesn't really turn out that way, but that's that's where he's going with it, at least initially. That's great. Well, great writing like fits information in without people even noticing that they're learning. Yes. So maybe she was so engrossed in reading <laughs> it, she didn't even realize she was absorbing. I think so. And I think that is the beauty and magic of Lisa Genova when she writes about these neurologic disorders and does it in such a way that it's so interesting and enjoyable and you're learning the neuroscience without it feeling like a classroom or, or something that's a chore to read. Well, I hope you become the Lisa Genoa of genetic counselor authors. <laughs> Thank you. It's definitely a niche that I feel like you were born into. So keep yeah. going with that. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, I, I, I hope so too. Thanks for listening to today's episode of DNA Clarity and Support Podcast. Head on over to watershedDNA.com to learn more about the resources and support available for those involved in DNA discoveries. 